Well, in the year of our Lord, 1510, Hanno the elephant was born in India. Hanno was born with a rare case of albinism, making him pure white from trunk to tail. Uh, white elephants were exceedingly rare and therefore very precious, in fact, priceless in those days. It became customary that if you found a white elephant in the jungles of India or Burma, uh, you could not keep it for yourself. It was a sacred animal, and the only person worthy to own such a, an animal was the king or the head of state. And so you would have to take the white elephant to the king, and kings prided themselves in having a white elephant. It was a sign of blessing from above or something like that. And of course, the person who gave them this gift would be handsomely rewarded because of their selflessness. And if they didn't give them the gift, they'd be executed for keeping an uh, elephant that was not theirs. It belonged to the king. So... When Leo X became Pope, uh, King Manuel I of Portugal wanted to send him a gift to get in his good graces, and he wanted to give him something that would show that uh, he recognized him as a head of state, that he recognized him as uh, a very important person, and it's a good idea to be in the good graces of the Pope. And so he came up with this idea, and he sourced one of these extremely rare and priceless white elephants and had it walk in a parade all the way from uh, Lisbon in Portugal to Rome and was given to Pope Leo X um, as, as a gift. And Leo was delighted um, when Ambassador Tristão da Cunha handed him this elephant. He was now one of the few people in the world that owned these, that showed his status, and he wanted to show it off to everybody, and he, he was just delighted that he had this little five-year-old pet elephant. There was a problem, though. It turns out elephants don't make good gifts. Um, unlike many of the kings who had botanical gardens and whatever to let their elephants roam in, uh, he lived in the Vatican, the Pope did, and so he had this elephant that ate literally tons of imported um, plants every single day and left tons of evidence that it was eating uh, every single day, and also roaming around in, in the Vatican was causing tons of expensive damage, and now the Pope didn't know what to do with this gift. He couldn't give it back. That would be uh, unheard of. He couldn't sell it. Uh, well, who are you going to sell a priceless gift to? And he couldn't give it to someone else and re-gift it, because if the Pope gave that to another king, that would be making a huge political and religious statement. And so he was kind of stuck with this gift that he didn't want. Um, two years later, the problem was resolved. The details are fuzzy, but it had something to do with the elephant coming upon uh, food that didn't agree with him, and he had a severe case of constipation. The remedy was, for a creature this sacred, a laxative made out of gold. Listen, I'm just reporting the facts here. I didn't make any of this up. Um, a laxative made up of gold. We're just going to skip to the next scene. <laughs> but it didn't work. And after ingesting the gold laxative, poor Hanno died. And the problem was solved. But what Hanno left for us was an enduring legacy in the English language of the idiom to give somebody a white elephant gift. Meaning a gift that you don't want, 
but maybe they will find of some use. And so if you have any white elephant gift exchanges, remember poor old Hanno and his golden laxative. Now, my question to you is, is a rare white elephant priceless or is it worthless? Well, the Apostle Peter is going to help us discern the difference between those two concepts. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, just like we've been doing every week the past few weeks. And you might be asking yourself, wait, are we just going to carry on with the Peter series? Doesn't this guy know that it's Christmas? Well, Peter's reminder to us is directly related to the reason for the season. You see, the, uh, a lot of us around Christmas time, we, we focus on the events of Christmas because they were so spectacular and so miraculous. But the writers of Scripture, besides just reporting the events that happened with the, the angels and the wise men and the shepherds and all that kind of thing and the virgin birth, besides reporting those events, the writers of Scripture actually focus more on the reason for those events. That people were sitting in great darkness and upon them came the great light of salvation through Jesus Christ. That God became man, became flesh and dwelt among us for the salvation of his people and for the liberation of the spiritual captives. Those are the reasons for the season of Christmas. And this is exactly what Peter is talking about. So just to remind you of the context, Peter has been giving us in this, this epistle the theme of keep calm and carry on. Um, these were Christians that were dispersed abroad because of persecution. They've been driven out of their homes and their jobs and away from their families. And, and they are in various uh, cities in Asia Minor. And he's writing this letter that gets passed from one to the other, as he says in the beginning, addressing it to all of them, as they are exiles. They're out of their home. But he also uses the parallel of being, they're away from their home now, literally, but all Christians are away from their home, spiritually speaking, because our citizenship is in heaven. And so he, he refers to our time here on earth as a Christian, also as an exile. And so the letter that he's writing to these people who may be under tremendous stress and anxiety that they are being persecuted for their faith, he's writing to tell them, God is not upset with you. God is not judging you. God is pleased with you, and he is using you, and you need to focus not on the here and now, but you need to focus on your true home, which is in heaven in the future. And so the flow of his argument has been to, to remind them of the security of their salvation, how it cannot perish, how it is undefiled and incorruptible, uh, how they have been known and foreknown by God. They have been chosen by God. They have been protected by God. Their salvation and ours is being guarded by God for us. He also spoke about the eternal rewards that await us. And that's why you need to conduct yourselves with fear in this life, living for the next life, because there will be this tremendous reward. And so basically the whole letter of Peter is just telling us, just keep calm, carry on. Don't panic. Whatever's happening in your life, whatever's happening in your family, whatever's happening with your health, whatever's happening with the politics, just keep calm. God is in control. And this isn't your home anyway. You belong in heaven. And so this is where we pick up the flow as it's still going. And now he gives us more reasons to treasure the cost, the value of our salvation. Let me read it from verse 14. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedience children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, 
You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if, or since, you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, verses 18 and 19. And we're going to see two gifts spoken of in this passage, two gifts so that we will recognize the difference between worthless and priceless. A lot of people today prize what is worthless. They think that their status and their safety and their wealth and position in society or whatever it is, is the true prize, what they should be living for. But actually, that's just temporary. There's something that is truly priceless, our salvation, and, and why is it priceless? And that's what he's going to talk about. So let's look at the first gift that he mentions in this passage, the worthless gift, and then we'll see the priceless gift. The worthless gift is found in verse 18. He says, knowing, so you're conducting yourselves with fear and trembling, knowing that there's something happening. What are you knowing? Well, knowing that you were ransomed. You were bought away from these things that I don't want you to partake in. I want you to be holy, not in your former ignorance. What were you bought from? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We all inherit something from our parents, our ancestors. We may inherit something from our society, our culture, our country, our background. There's certain things that you hold dear, certain things that you believe, certain things that you do, simply because it was handed down to you from the people who decided things before. And sometimes you know what that's about, and sometimes you don't even know why you do it. Why do we, here in America, eat pumpkin pie around Christmas time, but in Britain they eat figgy pudding, whatever that is? They even need blood pudding, which is what it sounds like. Now, why? Why would anybody do that? Well, they say, well, why would you want to turn a pumpkin into a dessert? Why around Christmas time do we hang holly on our doors? Why do you make your wreath out of holly? Why that and not some other plant? Why do we even hang wreaths? Where does that come from? Why do we do that? Why do we wear ugly sweaters? doesn't make any sense, does it? Or hang Christmas lights. And a lot of the answer is, well, my parents did that, so it's a family tradition. And some traditions are harmless and they're fine, they, but what it is, is it's a way of doing something that has been handed down to you from your forefathers. There's a lot of things that you notice when you come from a different country that people do that's just strange to you. Like, I've never understood, why do you people tip your barber? That's just completely normal to you. I mean, you just paid them to do it, and now you're going to pay them more. Why? I mean, you don't pay your dermatologist for harvesting your molds. You certainly want him or her to do a good job, right? It just doesn't make sense. It's just all sorts of things that we just, we do because 
that's what we do. It's inherited from our forefathers. Now, the items I've been mentioning, there's nothing really inherently right or wrong about any of those, but when you do something or believe something that's been handed to you from your forefathers, it can be a problem if it is detrimental to your salvation. Because now you're tinkering with something that has eternal value. It doesn't matter what you do here as far as the tradition of your society, unless that tradition now clashes with something that God says you may or may not do. And often we don't even think through those things. There are some cultures, uh, I've told you about this when I was living in Argentina as a, um, an exchange student, that my host brother had a girlfriend, and when we went to a, a town nearby, he pulled me aside and said, now listen, you're going to meet a different girlfriend there, and she doesn't know about the one in this town, so I don't want you to talk about them. And I, I was appalled. How, how can you have two girlfriends and they not know about each other? What? And he says, that's okay. My dad has a mistress. It's just what we do here. Now, I don't know how widespread that is in Argentina, but certainly in that family, he figured this was something that was handed down by his father to him, that it was permissible. In some cultures, it is permissible to be, and, and just part of the culture, to, for husbands to be physically abusive to their wives or their children or their pets. It's just part of culture. Soon, some children will grow up in our world thinking that it is perfectly normal and acceptable to choose their own gender. They're just going to think that that's normal. Why wouldn't we? My parents, my teachers said it was okay. and They might teach that to their kids. Eventually, it will become entrenched in society. So, Peter calls this phenomenon, in verse 18, a futile way handed down by your forefathers. Futile meaning worthless, useless when it comes to salvation. In fact, it's detrimental. It gets in the way of salvation. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This gift that you got from them is worthless. You might value it because it's something that my family's always done, but it's worthless. Now, he's writing to primarily Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews had this system handed down to them that was legalistic. It had taken the, the true Judaism of the Bible, the, the worship of Yahweh in the Old Testament, and had added layers that had, were handed down by the rabbis and the spiritual leaders over the ages until it had become codified and, and entrenched in their religion. So they had rules, like on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, you could not carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig. Unless you carried it on the back of your hand. Then you could do whatever you wanted. Or if two people carried it together. So if you wanted to bring your Bible to church, you would have to balance it on your hand, on the back of your hand, or you and your wife could carry it together, and that would be fine. Which do you think is more work, by the way, trying to carry a Bible with your wife or just carrying one in your hand? But that's not the point. The point is this was a rule that had been passed down. And this was the Judaism that Jesus entered. And so whenever you see Jesus railing against the Jews, that's the idea that he's railing against. That a, a widow would come and put her last mite in the offering thinking that that's what God wanted from her. This is just part of the system. That people could say, I'm not going to look after my parents in their old age because I have dedicated to God, called Korban, um, all of my excess wealth. 
And so Jesus says, these things and many others, you teach as if they were the doctrines of God, but they're just the doctrines of men. And so Peter's saying, be careful of that. This is a futile way that's been passed down to you. But the Gentiles also had futile ways. They had inherited from their forefathers a polytheistic system of worship. So they would worship multiple different gods. And if you wanted, um, if you were going to war, then you would do an offering to the god of war, um, Mars or Mercury, depending on if you were Roman or Greek. And, and you could have a household god, and you could go buy a little statue and carry him in your pocket, and, and, or set her up and worship her uh, for different things. And this was just completely normal, part of society. And he says, but these things you need to let go of. They are futile ways. And you have been bought from those things, ransomed. You were held hostage to them. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, tragically, Christianity has over the centuries also been infected by futile ways handed down by our forefathers. It happened very early on in the early church. You see the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians being written to Christian churches where Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Leading you astray so quickly after you heard the gospel, and now that there's this other gospel going back to the Jewish ways. So right in the early church, there were people adding rules that weren't coming from God, that they required to be saved. And this went on for centuries until um, you, you get systems like climbing the Santa Scalia on your knees. Santa Scalia was believed to be the sacred stairs that led up to the bema seat of Pilate. And those stairs were carved out and taken to Rome. And pilgrim Christians from all over could come to Rome and climb up those Santa Scalia on their knees on the marble staircase, saying an Our Father prayer by rote each step of the way. And the popes declared that these this was effectual for salvation. For example, um, in 1817, Pope Pius VII granted nine years off your sentence in purgatory for every step that you climbed up on your knees. And so, of course, people lined up and climbed up on their knees as many times as they could to, to shave years off purgatory. By the way, purgatory is a concept not found anywhere in the Bible. It was also a way handed down by forefathers. This was upgraded in 1908 by Pope Pius X to a plenary indulgence, meaning that it wiped out all of your sins as long as you climbed the stairs devoutly after confession and communion. This is still going on today. In April 2019, they took the wooden covering that they put on uh, many years ago, they took off the wooden covering because... You know, they didn't want people's knees on the actual marble. And they said, no, now it's more effective because there's no covering between you and the stairs. And when they did that, so many more people flocked to Rome to climb those stairs, believing that now the act would be even more effectual for their salvation, that after three months, the marble was being worn down by the human knees. Marble is hard to wear down. And so they had to recover it later that year. These are the same stairs that in 1510, the year that Hanno the Elephant was born, uh, Martin Luther climbed these stairs on his knees and when he got to the top, believing that he was doing something that was effectual, 
But when he got to the top and looking around at the miserable people, he famously quipped, is this even true? It was five years later that he would hammer his 95 theses on the castle door in Wittenberg, and one of his main problems that he was picking with the church and needed, that needed to be reformed and, and, and brought back to biblical standards was that they were selling these indulgences through these types of things that he had done himself that were completely ineffectual, or as Peter would say, a futile way handed down by your forefathers. This still happens today in America. But we're a little bit more sophisticated because what we do is we take our futile way and we stick an ism behind it. And then it sounds very philosophical. Existentialism. Socialism. Feminism. Darwinism. As soon as you act an ism on it, people are going to write textbooks about it. You can take a class at university. It's very sophisticated. All it is is a futile way handed down by your forefathers. Whether it's Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus or Charles Darwin or Karl Marx or any of these people, whoever the intelligentsia beatify next. But most people that we know, most people that you're going to bump um, shoulders with are not going to use the pretentious parlance of a campus coffee shop when they talk about their futile ways. You'll hear it come out in phrases like this. I know I'm going to heaven because... I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm good compared to many, many other people. Or you hear them say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I served in the band. I taught a class of Bible. You know, what they're doing is they're mentioning things that they have been taught by somebody is an effectual way to make sure you go to heaven. And if you ever get into a conversation with somebody and you ask them, how do you know that you're right with God, that you're going to live for eternity in heaven, and they start with any system, even if it's just, I think I'm a pretty good person, God's going to overlook my sins, or whatever it is, whatever the answer is, this is what you say. Where did you learn that? How do you know that for sure? Who told you that? You didn't just come up with that on your own. Who told you that? And the answer is, it is a futile way handed down by my forefathers. Whether they are intellectual forefathers or your physical ancestors or some teacher you respect or some book that you read. You heard it somewhere. When I was teaching English, I, there was an eighth grade boy and it came up in discussion in class and this eighth grade, eighth grade boy had said, definitively that he believed abortion was always okay because a woman has a right to choose what happens to her own body. This is a kid whose voice had not broken. And so I asked him, where did you learn that? Well, my, my mom told me that. She must be right. Lucky for him, he was one that she decided to keep. I mean, he's not thinking through anything. He's just heard this from his mom. I wonder how many people there are here who believe what they believe just because they heard it from their parents. I hope that my children grow up believing in Jesus Christ not because they just heard it from me, but because they saw it in the scriptures. 
that the Holy Spirit drove that truth home to them. So people place their faith in many futile ways inherited from godless parents or teachers or a barrage of a thousand, thousands of hours of YouTube videos and TikTok clips and sitcoms and movies and books and all the worldly philosophies that we pump our mind full and often don't bother to counteract with the actual truth. They didn't get it from the Bible. Ephesians 4.17 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ignorance. People can have PhDs in whatever, but they have a hard heart, and so they refuse to look at the evidence and interpret it rightly, pointing towards a creator, because they have a hard heart, and they are darkened in the futility of their mind. These worthless, futile ways that we get given are not only useless white elephant gifts lying around in our houses, they are destructive, actual white elephants stomping around in our houses. They're damaging. And so what do we do with that? What, what does get us right with God? What, what is a priceless gift? That brings us to our second point. So the worthless gift is Anything that you've been handed from anyone, no matter how close they are to you or how fancy their education seemed or any book you've read, that is ineffectual in getting you right with God. That's a futile way handed down by your forefathers. That is a useless gift that you got. But what is the opposite? What is a priceless gift? Look at verse 18 again knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, currency, but with the precious, you could say priceless, blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. See, here Peter is contrasting something worthless that we have been given, ideas about how to get right with God that don't work, that people put their faith in, versus what actually gets you right with God that does work, that is infinitely more precious. And sometimes we can't tell the difference because we don't know the context. So let me ask you this. If I just ask you, and of course it's a trick question, so don't shout out the answer because you'll get it wrong. Um, but if I asked you, would you rather have $50 million or a used napkin? That's a serviette in America. A used napkin or $50 million? If it were an actual choice and I promised I would give it to you you would all choose the $50 million. But if you found out that the $50 million was a banknote printed by the Federal Reserve of Zimbabwe, which during the uh, hyperinflation of the early 2000s, a friend of mine, um, American missionary, who was living in South Africa, got his hands on a few of these bills, actual legitimate currency printed by the government that says on it $50 million. He has it in his office. He shows it to people when they come by. 
With that $50 million, you cannot buy a loaf of bread in Zimbabwe. It's worthless. People were using the currency as toilet paper so that they didn't have to pay for toilet paper because the currency was worth less. Now, I'll give you one of those if you want it. You, that's what you ask for, rather than the used napkin. Do you know that once when Picasso was sitting in a restaurant, he overheard that a table near him was, had run up a bill that they could not pay, and there was a big argument developing about how they were going to pay this, and Picasso called the server over. He was sitting by himself in the corner, and he took his napkin, and he squiggled some Picasso juice on it, and signed it, you know, and handed these squiggly lines, and that napkin today framed in a museum is worth $50 million. Actual dollars, not Zim dollars. <laughs> so you picked wrong. You picked wrong because you didn't know the context. You look at a napkin, you think it's worthless, but it's actually practically priceless. See, this is what happened when Jesus Christ came to earth. He seemed ordinary. He seemed subordinary. Born uh, not even in a, in a palace or a house, but in a stable because they wouldn't make room for him in the inn because they didn't value him. If they had known this person about to be born is the most important human being ever born and ever will be born, the king not only of Bethlehem and Israel, but the entire universe who made the universe, someone would have given up their bed. But they didn't recognize him. So they laid him in a stable, in a manger, the people that showed up, the welcoming committee with the blue-collar workers down the road, they were the ones, the, 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 the shepherds that went and spread the message. And they didn't recognize him. They didn't value him. When he went, he grew up and he, he went to his hometown and he preached that the people were sitting in darkness and now they have seen a great light. I've come to give sight to the blind. Today, this scripture has been filled in your presence. You are the blind. You are the ones in darkness. I am the light. I am the one that have come to save you. You know what they did? They tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off Mount Precipice because he claimed to be something that they didn't recognize. Is this not the carpenter's son? And yet, he seemed to be a worthless gift, but he was a priceless gift to mankind. There's so many things we put our value in where we completely miss the context. We put so much value in what Peter calls here perishable things like silver and gold. Silver and gold. Currency. You know, if there's a ransom to be paid, what do they want the ransom paid in? Unmarked bills. They want it in cash. They want it in currency. These days they want it in Bitcoin. Good luck with that. Um, they, they want money. But there's some things that money can't buy. And you can't buy your soul out of the futile ways that you've inherited from your forefathers. No matter how many times you climb those stairs, no matter how much money you put in the offering, no matter how many times you faithfully show up at church, and all the things that you do that are good things, no matter how much you do that, it's not the right currency. It's like trying to ransom your soul with monopoly money or zim dollars. That's why Jesus said in Mark 8.36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? 
There's nothing we have. God doesn't want our money. So worthless means that there's no amount of money so small that someone would pay it to have that item because they don't want it. I wouldn't pay you one penny for a bag of garbage. I wouldn't give you a penny for a cassette tape of Christmas carols sung by the heavy metal band Megadeth. I'd rather keep the penny. I don't have any value for that. I wouldn't want it. It's worthless to me. Priceless means there's no amount of money you could offer to get that item from me. There is no amount of money you could ever offer me to buy one of my children. I mean, there's some days that I'm like, okay, what do you got? Make me an offer. There's no amount of money I would take for one of my children. They're priceless. I would die rather than lose one of them, right? That's the difference. So my question is, which are you? Are you priceless or are you worthless to God? Now, it might seem very normal to say, no, all people are priceless to God. But is that true? I mean, if you read the Bible, it talks about those who are priceless to God, those that he ransomed from the feudal ways they inherited from their forefathers. Not the people that have not been ransomed. The thing is that you get to choose. And people say, well, no, 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 we have an inherent value. We're, as human beings, you know, the things that we do have some value. That's what people mean when they say, I'm a good person. That's what they mean when, well, I haven't killed anybody. Well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done these bad things. I have done these good things. I know I've done some bad things, but not that bad. I've done more good things, and God's going to do this on the scales and kind of figure out which one weighs more. And that's a futile way that's been handed to them. But the Bible tells us the truth is, in Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Everything you consider valuable to God, he already has and doesn't want yours. Yours is contaminated by sin. You're trying to give him righteousness? He's got righteousness in spades. He doesn't need your righteousness tainted by sin. Like you're offering him this filthy rag in return for an eternity of righteousness in heaven. We are, important qualification here, in and of ourselves, we are in and of ourselves, Worthless to God. Now, I know that this isn't going to help your self-esteem. Good. You already have too much self-esteem. Because if you have any self-esteem, you have too much self-esteem. Me too. If you value yourself at all, you have missed the point of the Bible. You have no value. You are a liability. You are worthless. Because all you have to offer is the very sin that God hates and wants to cast away forever. That's all you have. Even your righteous deeds. In and of yourself. You're like, come on, Pastor, this is a Christmas message. I'd be crying too. Let me give you the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4. But, and this is what I think it's uh, J. Vernon McGee calls the best but in the Bible. <laughs> you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You are following the course of this world with all these futile ways that you've inherited from your forefathers. You are doing whatever Satan wants to do. He's the Pied Piper and you're just the rat behind him. And you have absolutely no hope. You are dead in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. There is nothing that you have to offer. You are a rotting corpse of sin. But God, <laughs> in verse 4, but God, being rich, in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. You see, every time I said you were worthless, and you are, I said this, in and of yourselves. We're all worthless in and of ourselves. But God, because of who he is and what he's like in his great mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, undeserved, unmerited, abundant love, because of that, we have worth. Not only do we move from absolutely worthless to, okay, well, now you've got some worth. We move not from worthless to worth or valuable, but to priceless. We move from, I wouldn't give you a penny for a bag of garbage righteous deeds that you have, to, I would rather die than lose you. That is worth crying about. And this is what Christmas is all about. This is the point of Christmas. This is that moment in history where everything changes from people sitting in darkness to seeing a great light. This is the moment in history when unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. By grace, which is a free gift, you have been saved. Not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You see that theme in scripture? God giving? That's what Christmas is all about. Not you offering him something. If I give you a gift and you say, Wow, pastor, this is such a thoughtful gift. How much was it? Let me write you a check. That's just insulting, right? That's what we do when we say to God, oh, you, you bought me? What do you need? What are you lacking? What, what can I give you? How can I make it up to you? You can't make it up to him. That's what priceless means. And so Peter specifically tells us the price. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, the things we value, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what makes us worthy and have worth. The precious blood. Our worth to God is so high that he is willing to pay the ultimate price to get us. That's what gives us our worth. The only currency accepts for ransom is blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. You can't offer him anything except to die and leave his presence forever. And instead, he loves you so much that he says, I'll die. And that's why it's so important for us to get our Christology right. Jesus Christ is God. It doesn't work any other way. That's why the virgin birth is so important. He didn't inherit his father's sin like the rest of us because sin goes through the seed of Adam. That's why the angelic announcement is so important because it's heaven saying, I'm, I agree with what this guy's going to claim when he grows up. Your ransom was paid not by your own blood but with the precious blood of Christ. That's why we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Isaiah said, your sins, though they be like scarlet, will be as white as snow. You went from worthless to priceless because of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to read you a quote from John Piper. John Piper um, is responding to people who say, there's kind of like a movement among Christians, you know, you're a king's kid, you know, you have worth, and um, uh, you know that you have worth because Jesus died for you. Jesus didn't die for the animals, and there was one going around at one point, Jesus didn't die for frogs, he died for humans. That's why frogs have no value, and humans have such value because we're the ones he died for. But Piper says this, I've heard it said God didn't die for frogs. So he was responding to our value as humans. This turns grace on its head. Piper says this, and only the way Piper can. We are worse off than frogs. We are worse off than frogs. Why? They have not sinned. They have not rebelled and treated God with the contempt of being inconsequential in their lives. God did not have to die for frogs. They aren't bad enough. We are. Our debt is so great, only a divine sacrifice could pay it. What an insight. Our value comes not because we're human, he had to die to get us because we're so valuable. No, his dying is what makes us valuable. We are the least of all of his creatures because we are the ones that sin against him. That's what makes his sacrifice so amazing and so precious and so priceless and so infinite and so worthy of our extolling him and worshiping him. And the reason we give gifts to each other around Christmas time is just to remind us of the concept of giving. We're not selling gifts to each other, I hope. And I love that little part. We'll, we'll end with this. Like, the, like that of a lamb. So the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the Jews, you know, they had to bring lambs looking forward to Christ's coming. We do communion looking back to Christ's coming. But the lamb, when they, you had to give it out of your flock, 
It was a portion of your wealth, because that's how they kept their currency, was in flocks. And you couldn't bring the sick one. Well, this one's going to die anyway. I'll just sacrifice this one. That's not a sacrifice. You had to bring one that was perfect. So the, the priest would have a look at it and make sure that it was without blemish or spot. It didn't have a limp. It didn't have a broken leg. It wasn't diseased. It wasn't going to die anyway. It didn't have a spot of disease. That's what that means. And so that's who Jesus was. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It only works if he doesn't have any sin. That's the gospel, that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, never sinned, not in thought, word, or deed. He was perfect his entire life. He was entirely righteous all the time. That's what made his one person as a sacrifice able to cover all the people who would believe in him, all the people before he came who put their faith in the coming Messiah, all the people after he came putting their faith in the, coming, the having come Messiah, because of his infinite righteousness. That's the gospel. That's why he had to be God. That's why Christmas is so important. And it's what makes him uniquely worthy. Because he was what we call in collector's circles, mint condition. I've recently uh, become involved in a premium Bible trading group. If it wasn't if your pastor wasn't nerdy enough before. Um, and so I've been learning about the different Bibles, and it turns out I have some valuable Bibles from, from many years ago. And, um, but the first question people ask is, is it in mint condition? I, I have this Bible that I preach out of. They call it the Godfather. It's a special paper, the special layout. I was given it by a friend, Jeffy, who's got a whole note in here about it. It's a special leather it's extremely valuable, except that I have written on every single page, every single page. Uh, this is my Bible I've had my, my adult ministry, and so I've, my, my whole ministry life, so every sermon I write, all my um, sermon notes and outlines on every page, it's got ink stained, it's got my friend's notes. And so when I tell them that, it goes from being very valuable to being worthless, because it's not in mint condition. So Jesus Christ was a lamb in mint condition, unstained, without spot or blemish. And that's why he's worthy. That's why in Revelation 5, they sing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy was the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So, this Christmas, that's what I want you to think about. Every time someone gives you a gift, every time you give a gift, you have a little white elephant exchange, I highly recommend that so that you remember there are some things that are worthless, some things that are useful, there are some things that have some value, but there's nothing like the priceless blood of the mint condition, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that is the reason for the season. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy it is at this time of the year to remember the humility of your Son. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are, the worthy one who takes away our sin, even though the world did not recognize you and we would not have recognized you, had you not shone abroad your love in our hearts and called us into the light, 
I pray for anyone here today, Lord, who is not yet made right with their creator and judge, that your Holy Spirit would convict them and draw them to the truth of Scripture, that Jesus Christ, Christ came into the world to save sinners. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you this season and every season. It's in your name we pray. Amen.